0: Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast with myself, and Walker. In this session, we're gonna be examining sudden cold water immersion with Ben Watts and Jamie Patterson. So what I want to do is speak to both Ben and Jamie, both WEM faculty and retrieval specialist practitioners um, around the highlights and indeed dangers of sudden cold water immersion and do a deep dive into some of the pathophysiological pathways that occur. so this is both in light of recent events but also prospectively to promote a discussion around the very real danger of cold water immersion. so both ben and jamie have and indeed do work in the highlands of scotland where temperatures frequently fall below zero so welcome to the world extreme medicine podcast ben and jamie
1: hello how you doing mate thank you for having us uh, good to see you absolute pleasure absolute pleasure
0: so what we wanted to do is um is just Try and revisit some of the principles and in some, uh, indeed some of the treatment pathways and look at the management of, of this condition. Uh, we do know um, that uh, upon entry to water, some of the physiological changes that are evoked um, to the skin, nerves and muscles within limbs and indeed deep body tissues can reserve, result in hazardous outcomes. So I guess my question first to Jamie would be, could you outline some of the main problems around some cold cold water immersion that paediatrics or indeed, indeed adults face? Yeah, of
2: course. Um, so for adults or children, entering the water is kind of a multifaceted problem. Um, so cold water and it doesn't really need to be that cold either in terms of, you know, water freezes, et cetera, and there's ice everywhere and snow. Um, you enter the water and it's cold enough and you're not um, acclimatized or acclimated or anything like that, you're going to have some pretty horrendous physiological responses where you get the kind of classic term of cold water shock, where you get um, inspiratory gasping and hyperventilation, um, which is the last thing you need to be doing when you enter the water, especially in an uncontrolled manner. Um, the other big problem with that is is that I think that a lot of people, and certainly I did until a few years ago, underestimate how dangerous the water actually is. Um, so especially moving water and what we call swift water, the forces that you are exposed to very, very instantaneously when you enter the water, um, when you start looking at the physics of it all, like, it's a crazy amount of force that's exposed on your body. Even if you're trying to stand up or indeed you're trying to, uh, swim, um, if you don't have a good understanding of hydrology and and um h- how these forces are acting on you like it's going to be working against you the whole time and um, which makes surviving and makes um you know getting yourself to being able to do something to get yourself to a place of safety even harder all the while you're you're trying not to um, swallow liters and liters of water and then um probably not that long until you reach Swim failure where your muscles cool, um, you're, you're probably ineffective swimming because it becomes even more effective. And then, um, yeah, leading to probably, you know, being swept away or, or caught up on something as well.
0: So, Ben, can we just look at. What's happening on the physiological level and just from uh, the body's reaction, uh, both indeed a gasp reaction and as Jamie was saying, this, this possibility you can get acute swim failure?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I think the, the first thing to talk about is the fact that the physiological responses that you get with cold water immersion is one of the reasons that lots of people take up cold water swimming as a pastime um so you have two main things that are are, are kind of being affecting your physiology so the first one is if your head and face go under the water that face that when it becomes cold and wet triggers your breath hold diving response okay Um, however your as as you've already alluded to your surface kind of cutaneous receptors um are responding to the fact that they're being triggered Um, and these trigger two different symptoms systems so your diving response triggers your parasympathetic system so that's affecting your uh, sinoatrial and your av nodes so that's essentially looking to slow down your heart your cutaneous cold receptors when that triggers the cold shock response what you've then got is a sympathetic stimulation so that's also affecting your sa and av nodes but also the myocardium to speed your heart up so uh, there's there's a paper from uh tipton say mike tipton who's an, an expert in like an in, incredible amount of research over the last 20 30 years um on uh cold water immersion so um this autonomic conflict so the 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 difference between your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous systems acting at the same time can cause arrhythmias so that's one of the first things that is um happening physiologically so your heart is trying to simultaneously slow down and speed up because of two different systems being triggered within your body um now, there are things that can obviously affect uh, your susceptibility to this. So um, in terms of, uh, you know, if you have medications or you've taken drugs that uh, affect your QT, um, if you have uh, underlying health conditions, you know, your ischemic heart disease, your uh, myocardial hypert- hypertrophy, um or if you have known kind of channelopathies, then that can obviously predispose you to having one or the other causing you more problems. Um, so the the other things that physiologically um, will be happening, um, in terms of your activation of the sympathetic nervous system, you're going to get peripheral vasoconstriction, you're going to get tachycardia. Um, and with the gas reflex, um, you're going to get hypocapnia, so uh, potentially hyperventilating, you're going to blow off some of your carbon dioxide, um, and that's going to reduce your cerebral blood flow, um, potentially causing things like respiratory alkalosis down the line. Um, so there's there's lots of things that are affecting your whole body negatively from different systems. Now, when we look historically at cold water immersion, and a lot of uh, cold water immersion deaths have been recorded as drownings, but without actually having any water in their lungs. So, um, you know, the the likelihood is, and and what's reported by by Professor Tipton is that that's probably due to a early arrhythmia so it's not a primary drowning case but it's a cold water exposure leading to a sudden fatal arrhythmia equally you can have the stimulation with stimulation of your cutaneous cold receptors um you know you have this uh change of your ventilation you have panic you can have swim failure and all of these things can uh, increase the likelihood of inhaling water so when you do inhale water obviously that is moving in the direction of drowning and you have with drowning you can have death you can have morbidity and you can have no morbidity so the the cold water immersion itself um, is very different from drowning in cold water Uh, it is the physiological processes that are happening to your body initially on entering the water. Um, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about it shortly. But the difference between having your head clear and having your head under the water, um, and potentially the transition from having your head clear, having a reduction in uh, muscle uh, kind of usefulness um, over time as you become cold. Um, and then having swim failure and your your head starting to move underwater, that changes the situation. It changes the survivability potentially of these sorts of uh, exposures. So the take-home points are if your head's out and someone has had a very cold uh, water exposure and they have died, but they haven't ever had their head underwater, the likelihood is this is for a moment arrhythmia it's from a change in uh their their cardiac rhythm with potential for hypothermic uh insult in that um and obviously there are very specific guidelines on what we do for resuscitation of those hypothermic patients in terms of your drowned patients so the patient has had their head underwater whether that is an immediate or a down the line event um you know there's potential that that person's inhaled water and again that changes slightly what you want to do in terms of prioritizing your management of these patients and I guess for us that's the key of of how we go on to manage them. So
0: looking at a few cases uh, from practice and uh, from sort of the wider literature and indeed, sort of the wider world, really. So we've got the case of the Norwegian skier Anna Baggenholm, And Jamie, you know, I think you know this case quite well. She had a plus two hour arrest. It was um again everything that ben was speaking to um around rather than a, a rapid it would be a p- progressive hypothermia i think she was trapped under the ice progressively um had a rosk post two hours or post plus two hours with good outcome could you maybe speak to is this a rare case is it a fringe case or indeed uh, is there is there a good outcome for these the, the, these kind of patients
2: uh, yeah so um for a bit of background and i was a swedish uh, radiologist working in norway at the time uh doing a residency at the university hospital of more annoying in and um, skiing after work and uh, came down a run and essentially um went through a hole in the ice uh i just fell over i think um kind of lost control fell headfirst onto a layer of of ice and it was over a kind of a mountain stream which is running underneath the ice, kind of a, a bit of a waterfall tonight. Um, and she was on her back and faith, obviously looking up. Um, and her head and torso, as as the kind of water hit her, head and torso got dragged under, the water filled her clothes up um, and her kind of body became trapped in the ice with the skis um, kind of sticking out. Um, I think it took a friend's maybe, five six seven minutes um of, like trying to pull her out and trying to rescue her and um, before they called for for rescue teams which i think certainly any of us would be in that position of trying to self-rescue i think um self-rescue and bystander action is probably one of the most form uh, effective forms of rescue um certainly we're talking about resuscitation. um and then so as they try to free her and rescue her, what was happening is that Anna had found a air pocket under the ice. So her her airway, etc. wasn't f- filled with water. Um, but she had this freezing cold mountain stream water um, flushing through, you know, over her entire body. So she had very effective convective cooling and obviously quite a lot of... Um, quite a lot of... Um, <laughs> Radiation into that water as well from a, from her a body um, and quite a lot of conduction. So in terms of, you know, thermoreg- thermoregulation mechanisms we're working on there, like this is probably one of the fastest ways you could cool something is pour a load of ice water over it uh, really, really fast. Um, after about 40 minutes, she stopped moving. Um, and then I think it took them about 80 minutes uh, of being trapped under this 20 centimetre thick ice. Um, for her to be freed, Um, when they managed to pull her out, um, I think there was two doctors from from the the rescue teams there uh, and they started CPR. Um, She was flown then to um, uh, Tromsø University Hospital um, and I think um, she was flown there within the hour by a seeking rescue helicopter um, and When she got to hospital, her core body temperature was was recorded at 13.7 degrees Celsius, um, which I believe is still the lowest recorded core temperature um, in an adult ever recorded for a a, a survivable uh, or a survivor, somebody to come back from that um, core temperature. Um, So um, I believe the lead kind of Doctor consultant on that day was a, a gentleman called Mads Gilbert and um, both these people have come to speak at, at WEM conferences in the past. And, um, essentially he led the team that, uh, you know, hundreds of doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals, where they, um, worked for nine hours to kind of bring her back. Um, she was put on ECMO, which is extra corporeal membrane oxygen, oxygenation machine, which. When you see one of these working, it's like a work of science fiction. It really is like modern medicine. To me, not just as a paramedic, but as a human being, seeing somebody's blood volume pumped out of their body uh to be warmed and then pumped back into them is just the it for me it's one of the pinnacles of kind of medicine. It's fascinating. Um and so they use that they use the ECMO machine to warm her uh warm her blood outside of the body, pop it back in, which is a, um uh one of the most effective ways of rewarming somebody and then her uh, heart started to beat again at, I think it was quarter past 10 that night um and I think the accident had happened about half six or something that, that evening um so she'd been in cardiac arrest for you know three four hours at that point and then um I think after a few days um on event later in kind of in ITU, she um, woke up uh, and after a few more kind of weeks, months in in hospital, um, kind of went back to to kind of a full recovery. Uh, She had a a little bit of peripheral neuropathy and paralysis and things, but recovered all those things fully and went back to work. Um, Not not too long later, Uh, I don't believe, it. it was certainly within the next year. Um, so to speak for how many, you know, how likely is this to, you know, work? Does this work hundred percent of the time, do we get everybody back? I think, um, that's kind of a multifactorial problem. Yes. You have a patient who's been cooled very rapidly with, uh, airway, reasonable airway protection, um, and, um, neuroprotection. That, so that hypothermia gives it, gives a good neuroprotective um effects as well so the brain's need for oxygen reduces significantly um i think a big part of this is um decision making by the rescuers and the the medical staff as well so the things that the teams did to get her out her friends called for help with it within about 10 minutes um which is a massive effect we know that you know the earlier we get someone there the better the fact that um, the rescue helicopter was diverted from another job and was available. Has a big effect, and um, yeah, I think the the willingness and the uh, and the commitment of the hospital staff to um, to commit so many staff and so much resources to this um, all plays a big effect. And I think there's a big human factor and a big kind of uh, uh, organizational factor there of the of the organizational willingness in the in the, in the and healthcare willingness to put resources into these patients um I think uh, survival rates for hyper severe hypothermic arrests are still about 10 to 30 to 30 percent you know within that range which is massively higher than your kind of standard out of hospital cardiac arrest it's about 10 percent chance in the UK um, and then again that's for various reasons as well um, I I personally feel that number could be a lot higher. You know, if we had um, better rates of bystander CPR, more defibrillators, uh, and a better a better system set up, um, so we do have a better chance. Potentially one in three chance of getting these patients back if we're doing things the right way.
0: So that's fantastic, and just a good synopsis of both that case and indeed the outcome. I think what we'll do is just look at the literature, indeed the empirical literature, um, and then pivot to look at the management of of sudden cold water immersion. So, I just, I guess, my my question to Ben around the literature would be that it, it sort of points to less enthusiastic survival rates. Post-arrest from cold water submersion, um, both uh, in the literature around cardiac arrest in pediatrics, Ben, but also in uh, within sort of um, uh, this ECCPR, so extracorporeal uh, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, so putting these people on ECMO. Could you could you maybe speak to, indeed, maybe why the poor outcomes? Uh, are, exists for poor cardiac arrest um in the case literature uh, when it's involving um sudden cold water immersion and indeed why it's also potentially not quite there in the literature yet for ecmo
1: yeah absolutely so the literature around cardiac arrest in paediatrics from cold water immersion and um, the first thing that there is to note is the fact that the numbers of patients that are reported in the literature are very low, so there are not massive case series of you know thousands and thousands of these uh, pediatric um, cold water cardiac arrest. Thankfully, um, you know, but we do know that that uh, drowning is um, you know still the leading cause of. Uh, death in ages 1 to 4 and the second highest cause in ages 1 to 16 um, in terms of, of death in children and, and worldwide, drowning is, is still a huge, huge issue and um, what we in the UK know is that the ages 1 to 4 tend to drown in baths the slightly older children tend to have issues in bodies of open water, ponds things like that and um, and as uh, we kind of move through our teenage years, uh, misadventure can be um, potentially uh, a factor that affects how we um, have entered water in the first place. Um, in the case of the outcome for paediatrics being quite poor, um there's, I guess, many different factors that potentially affects it, and we can't say for definite exactly what, um, you know, the 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 issues will be. So some of the potential factors are that you, as a child, have a large surface area to um, kind of body ratio, so you are going to cool quicker. Um, you tend not to have as much uh, insulation. As a child, so you are more likely to call cool quicker. You are less likely to have the ability to control your breathing and to have um, a calm response to that cold water immersion. Um, you're less likely to have had training in how to self-rescue. So, you know, um, there's big projects from the RNLI looking at uh, you know how to float, how to survive. Um, and that hopefully is is starting to filter through schools and communities that actually, you know, children have that better um, availability of, of knowledge of how to survive in water and how to self-rescue. Because as Jamie said, you know, self-rescue and rescue by bystanders and parents is is where the difference is made in these cases. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, children having cold water, uh, of immersion events they potentially have as much chance as an adult of survival in the right circumstances unfortunately the circumstances that they tend to find themselves in they are probably doing something without the knowledge of adults potentially there may be less people uh, around when they're you know when they are in a state of misadventure Um, and so the the things that jamie talks about in terms of the you know immediate kind of rescue and cpr and good quality things you know we still know that the adults and bystanders are less likely to go to a child that looks to be in distress because of you know social norms people will want to um but then may take a little while to get them into a position that they are willing to go and rescue others. Um, in terms of the ECCPR uh, for hypothermic arrest, one of the one of the biggest issues, I guess, for us certainly in the UK is actual availability of ECCPR. So, you know, in in Scotland um, we have uh, ECMO available uh, in Aberdeen uh, for. Adults and uh, children at the Children's Hospital in uh, Glasgow, and I think also possibly in Edinburgh, uh, ECMO is available. Obviously, there are alternatives in terms of cardiac bypass available in more places, but actually, the the centres are few and far between. Um, and across England, there are you know specialist ECMO centres, but again, very few and far between the availability um, of those. Uh, services will vary in terms of time frame in terms of who's available Um, we're not regularly accessing them Um, we know from a pre-hospital environment that the initial phase treatment is just so important Um, so if we kind of have a look at the the two different kind of Aetiologies that we're we're sort of talking about. So the sudden cold water immersion, where the the patients become cold over a short short period of time, but they they haven't necessarily drowned. They've not been inhaling water. Um, Those patients need really good quality CPR, really good rewarming, and they need to be be transported in cardiac arrest as safely as possible with all of the essential management done well. So. Good CPR, continuous CPR, good ventilation, uh, optimized ventilation. You know, ideally suctioning any secretions, potentially uh, if it's available. You know, passing of NG tubes um, to uh, to deflate the stomach to reduce the risk of um, any uh, regurgitation, um, and then. You know, in terms of the drug therapy, following your 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 guidelines, uh, looking at your um, special kind of circumstance, cardiac arrest guidelines for hypothermia, um, which again we can we can talk about in a short while. And with your drownings, um, you know, the CPR is really important. Your oxygenation, your ventilation management, your suctioning is even more important. You know, whether you're using multiple suction devices, if you have got that regurgitation. Um, If it's in your skill set and you are a seasoned provider with, um, you know, the skills, the, the ability to be practicing regularly, you know, intubation for these patients is, is beneficial, um, However, if not, it's important that you're ventilating in the most effective method for that patient, Um, and you know potentially using two-person techniques for bag-valve masking patients or using eye gels. When it comes to accessing EC CPR, uh, so your ECMO. Um, early communication is going to be key for these so speaking to the hospital really early if someone can break away during the pre-hospital phase working out where the uh, you know closest ECMO centre is speaking to an A&E potentially going to your nearest A&E with the the pre-alert that this patient may be an ECMO candidate and there may be pathways within your ambulance service within your uh, local health authority where ECMA retrieval teams are able to come to the hospital that's closest to you, rather than you bypassing a load of hospitals to go somewhere really far away. Um, but getting them, you know, in into a hospital to then have that specialist retrieval um, is is probably far more important. Um, in terms of warming, I think we'll we'll probably talk about that in a lot more detail shortly. Um, so, from a pre-hospital point of view, really important primary, good quality CPR, all the essential skin skills done well, early consideration of ECMO and early communication of the circumstances of the cardiac arrest to the receiving centre. Time is is absolutely something that will run away with you on these jobs. And the sooner you communicate with those specialist centres, the, the, the more likely you are to be able to access them. Um, the appropriateness of those uh interventions will depend on the circumstances that, that the child or adult has had their uh, their their cardiac arrest or their their sudden cold water immersion event um but like i said the key is doing those essential things well transporting safely you're probably going to need lots of people this is going to be a a people intensive work intensive Uh, incident you're going to want to have the best quality cpr at all times. so regular rotation particularly if you're in a cold environment doing cpr um you are going to want to to be rotating very regularly to to keep that cpr the best as possible
0: so, just pivoting on to that, Ben, you've mentioned some key aspects of of management there. Um, Jamie, I wondered if you could give us some fundamentals from your perspective, maybe about sort of stripping clothes off and indeed that conduction principle you were talking about earlier. So When you are approaching the either peri arrest or indeed post arrest hypothermic patient, what, what, what would you look to be doing for these patients?
2: So, as as always, it's the basics done well. So, in your peri arrest patient. In any patient really, especially those patients who are um, suffering traumatic injuries, um, we know that um hypothermia uh combined with trauma produce, produces um the, the triage of death and then makes them coagulopathic and um worsens prognosis. If a patient becomes hypothermic in any in any part of their kind of patient journey, um, they will have uh longer stays in hospital, they're more susceptible to infections just um, have a bad time. Um, so um, I think hypothermia and the impacts of hypothermia, especially in the NHS, is very underreported um, because we know that pre-hospital temperature management isn't very accurate and it will become hypothermic in hospital wards as well um, for various reasons. So um, the basics done well, it's really important So protecting them from the environment, um, and it's not just a case of turning up and putting a sleeping bag or a load of jackets over somebody. You need to insulate them from the floor as well. That conductive um, heat loss is really much more effective than the than the radiation out into the into the atmosphere. Removing wet clothing is really important as well. As somebody warms up and their and their um, their core temperature comes up, that's gonna start to warm their clothes as well. And then those clothes will start to dry out and as they start to dry out that water vapor is going to evaporate from away from their skin and away from their clothes and take a lot of energy evaporation is the most effective way to lose heat whether it's hot or it's cold if you're wearing cold um if you're wearing cold wet clothes you're going to cool a lot faster as you're trying to warm your patient up they're just not going to get any warmer that's also why scotland in the winter feels much colder than minus thirty in Canada. The water vapor is still in the air. It hits your face, your your face, and your skin temperature evaporates the water vapor and makes you feel colder um, than that nice dry, um, that dry cold, at minus kind of minus thirty where there is no water vapor in the air. Um, there is the old myth that you lose all the, the most of your heat through your head as well. And while it's in, in, important to cover the patient's head you lose heat from wherever's uncovered. Um, And if you've got pretty much everything covered, the next biggest place you're going to lose heat from is through um, breathing. So as you breathe in and out, you have to uh, warm and humidify the air to be able to use it in in your body. So um, using a buff or a face mask or some sort of uh, balaclava kind of deal to um, kind of reduce that differential as well, is gonna is gonna help massively too. Um, so yeah, insulating the more environment below below kind of thirty degrees, you're gonna need um, exogenous heat, so a, a, a source of heat which is not the patient and not you. Um, there's no point in putting a person in a sleeping bag with them because while they will get warm, you're gonna get cold as well, and then you probably may, you'll potentially have two patients on, um, uh, and that's what we really don't need. So. You kind of classify these in two two, well, two well, or three classifications. So you've got external, passive, um, so removing wet clothing is really, really important. Um, blanket. Uh, warm drinks are good if the patient can manage that, um, but if you throw a, a cup of tea into a cold bath, that doesn't warm it up. So you don't take too much in the fact that they're managing warm drinks because it's probably not having that much effect and you still need to do it in conjunction with everything else. It's a multifactorial thing. So. Um, you can then look at external active. So if you've got a um, uh, uh, forced air heater, um, where you can, you know, uh, use a, a a bear hugger or some some form of kind of heated blanket with, with warm air or indeed convective warm air over the patient's gonna really help as well. And then into the more advanced kind of interventions where we have uh, internal active heating. So where we're, um, ventilating them with warm air warm humidified air and um, we're using warmed intravenous fluids you can we can um look at um peritoneal um uh, body lavage, um and then in the things like uh ecapr like like ben's talking about with the the cardinary cardiopulmonary bypass and in echo machines um those things are going to be really effective um by far, obviously, the most effective is your um, is your ECMO machine. You're going to get a, a temperature increase of one to two degrees every five minutes, um, if you're doing it really. If it's really effective, um, but obviously, that's reserved for patients who are who are in cardiac arrest as well. Um, there's, I think, there's also a bit of a myth still around. You know, well, I don't want to warm them up too quickly um, initially. Now, in my experience, I don't think—and this is anecdotally—I don't think that you can warm somebody up too quickly. I think when you look at the rate of warming on an ECMO machine and how we think, how we see it as really positive that we're getting one to two degrees every five minutes, you're not going to achieve that pre leave. You're lucky if you get one to two, degree, two degrees by the time you get to hospital, um, unless unless you're doing stuff that's really, really effective and, and probably pretty invasive. Um, so, yeah. Really effective uh, thermoregulation thermo care. Really effective stewardship of the those thermodynamics. And I always see the patient as a set of thermodynamics. What's making this patient cold, and how can I address that? Um, and again, for the patient in cardiac arrest, it's applying you know BLS and ALS as described in all, all the guidelines. Um, rewarming them as fast as possible. Um, I think you could say that rewarming is probably the best antiarrhythmic thing you can do for this patient, um, and again, look for, don't, don't just tunnel vision into the, into the hypothermic just because we're outside or it's cold or whatever, look for comorbidities, consider alternative diagnosis. Why, why is this person hypothermic? A lot of these patients, especially in the UK, the 20,000 hypothermic deaths a year, there is an impact from trauma, um, and you know, drugs and alcohol. Um, and again, as Ben spoke to, like, definitely have that early thought that this is gonna be a prolonged resuscitation with a multi-resource uh, multi, um, uh, requirement and multi-specialty input as well. Um, this patient is gonna require a lot of commitment and a lot of input from resources and um, and clinicians to, to, do, to do these things. And you're gonna have to be advocate for this for this patient as well, um, but yeah, basics done well. I'm um, just remembering that you know your, your chest compressions and your defibrillation are most important. Defibrillation is less effective in hypothermia, um, and you know we can do that up to. We're not going to try it until the patient reaches about thirty degrees, um, and then it's going to be three times, and then we're going to probably stop that. Pacing is generally ineffective um and i think the guidance says that you're not going to try facing a mess you know it's not going to be effective until normal thermia is reached and you're probably not going to um it it might just be a sinus bradycardia which is not going to be not going to get better unless we get warm and again the kind of bottom line and people have heard this the time and time again is that they're not dead until they're warm and dead you can't really diagnose death until um, you've got a patient who has been rewarmed, has um, been managed, been managed well, had good ALS, and um, everybody's everybody's on the same on the same uh, page.
0: That's fantastic, Jamie, a really good synopsis from the management of, of the pathology. So, Ben, just to you and indeed then to Jamie, have you got any salient take-home points for listeners who want to sort of effectively uh, deal with
1: this pathology? Absolutely. So when you're managing your sudden cold water immersion patient, uh, you know, careful, gentle handling is really important. Uh, the management of... Uh, kind of your defibrillation strategies changes your management of your drug strategies and your pharmacological interventions changes um do the essential things really well think about the fact that chest compression is harder in someone that is cold it's potentially going to be uh a, a kind of a need for for the, the person doing CPR to be changed more frequently. Um, think about the physiology and what it is that's happened to that patient and what they need to be able to combat those issues. Um, I recently had uh, a patient that had a hypothermic cardiac arrest, not from cold water immersion, um, but had CPR for two hours and 20 minutes uh, before getting ROSC. They were super, super unstable in flight. Um, Any movement, any acceleration, deceleration hugely changed um, their kind of baseline physiology at the time. Their blood pressure was dropping, going up. Um, Their response to their sedation and uh, the drugs that they required to remain sedated post-ROSC was they they needed more frequently and uh, they were essentially a very unstable patient so it's really important that the the kind of gentle handling the gentle uh use of drugs to to make sure that you're not the 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 response was was kind of very quick and very sudden to to kind of um the vasopressors um and so it's just about managing these patients really carefully whilst you're transporting them to a specialist center or if you know, like we've talked about, um, that communication very early with those specialist centers, with your places that can provide VA, ECMO, uh, ECCPR. Um, so if your patient's in cardiac arrest, getting them potentially to come to you, um, when you do get that ROSC, manage them really carefully, warm them aggressively, like Jamie says, um, you know, in terms of that, that warming, so things like, you know, uh, warmed fluids is not available to everyone certainly not in the pre-hospital environment so if you if you suspect your patient is a hypothermic cardiac arrest then uh in the pre-hospital environment try and get hold of your your local specialist care team whether that be your critical care team or basics responders that may or may not have the ability to Provide warmed fluids. Um, in hospital, things like your warmed bladder lavage. So, um, you know, all of these things potentially uh, will help your patient. Think about the the issues with hypothermia, so diuresis, so keep your patient hydrated. Fluid resuscitation is really important, particularly post-ROSC. Um, and just when you're managing these patients change your mindset you're in this for the long haul this is a patient that you're going to resuscitate and resuscitate and resuscitate to the best of your ability to the best of your services ability you're going to need people you're going to need resources um and don't give up on them until like jamie says they are warm and dead all right you you potentially have an opportunity to do some incredible life-saving work
2: so i think especially in the cold water immersion patient you um you are heavily at risk of being put into the same situation yourself as a rescuer so that danger aspect and that risk management and that dynamic risk assessment of the situation is me unless you're a specialist was res- on responder with training and the correct pp and equipment really 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 do your best not to enter the water because you're going to be and put yourself in the same position and water is one of the most dangerous mediums that we come across. And it's one of the most common mediums. That we, we kind of work around this stuff every day. Um, and the risk of it is, is just astronomical. I think if you, if you kind of produced a product and it had the same element of risk and took it on something like dragon's den, they would just tell you to get lost cause you're um, going to end the world basically. Um, and I would just simplify hypothermia management, whether that is especially on cold water immersion, but once they've been rescued um and they're out of the out of the wounds at, at the hot zone, even though it's cold, um pre-hospital temperature measurement is poor, especially once they've been in the water. The ear can also be cold because of that cold water as well. So you probably won't get an accurate core temperature. So just simplify it the uh, International Committee of Alpine Rescue now recommends that you just use your AVPU scale to um, kind of synergize with the, the stages of hypothermia. So if they're alert, they might be cold stress or mildly hypothermic as well. Alert to voice and just a bit kind of apathetic, you, you start to get into your moderate. And then responsive to pain or indeed unresponsive, you, you go into severely, like kind of um, <laughs> deeply hypothermic or indeed severely hypothermic cardiac arrest and i would just keep it that simple um i echo ben warm aggressively especially if you're i've never ever been able to warm up patient too fast and um, um indeed mechanical CD- cpr devices are really useful um bring spare batteries this is going to be for the long haul and if you haven't got one of those and you're trying to move a patient we can do intermittent cpr with five minutes on and five minutes moving and then five minutes on and five minutes moving but again as in any other cardiac arrest effective cpr is one of the most important aspects of this uh, ECPR is really really effective the literature says about 50 percent of patients survive and they're most of them are expected to have a good neurological outcome and um, i kind of caveat that in that a lot of that data comes from mountainous regions where they um are receiving patients who are from ski areas, who are young and fit, uh, and probably would have better outcomes than you know, UK population generally. Um, in terms of selecting patients for that and futility of uh, the resuscitation, um, there's something called the Hope score that you that is used, which looks at serum potassium um it's quite common avalanche uh rescue and and medicine these days um but i believe that potassium over 10 uh or indeed you know severe trauma is is probably considered futile at that point
0: so from a prognostication perspective could you uh, both maybe indeed speak to any tools that exist that would help the clinician um jamie i know you mentioned the hope score ben could you maybe expand on it
1: yeah absolutely so as as jamie said the hope scores uh, a useful tool for um prognostication so um this is a a large international collaborative project that uh, was carried out uh, by one of the university hospitals in switzerland Um, and essentially it uh, gives you a percentage score of how likely the patient is to survive based from 0 to 10. Um, So the information that you need for your patient to be able to utilize the HOPE score, and it's a a website which will be be in the the show notes. Um, So your age and years, the sex of the patient, whether they're male or female, and then uh, hypothermia with, so either with asphyxia, so head fully covered by water or snow, and in cardiac arrest extrication, or without asphyxia, so immersion, uh, outdoor or indoor cold exposure, how long their CPR duration was in minutes, uh, and their serum potassium, uh, their temperature scale. You select either Celsius or Fahrenheit, and then you put in your t- your your temperature, um, and then uh, the the website itself asks that if this is a real case that um, the you uh, include an email address however you can use it uh, without including your email address so um for instance if our patient was you know 57 years old was a female uh, had no asphyxia had uh two hours and 20 minutes of cpr with a serum potassium of 5.4 and a core temperature of 27.5 um that would give us a uh predicted survival score say the hope survival probability would be 34 um, percent and it gives you that that kind of idea of of how well your patient's going to do there's a couple of papers that the the website links you to for the um the kind of uh, derivation study and of the um external validation study and then also into the european uh, resuscitation council guidelines uh, that also advocates its use. Um, so it, this is a tool that is not necessarily going to be something you use in the pre-hospital environment, but in the in-hospital environment, uh, this is a, a really useful tool, um, and it's something that I would imagine will be utilised or discussed if you're speaking to um, a uh, ECMO specialist or or a, a service that can provide um, your ECCPR. Um, so yeah uh the hope score is really useful um when otherwise looking and thinking about prognostication uh, i guess it's taking those individual parts and then using that kind of uh, information together so i guess the the biggest difference is around that hypothermia with or without asphyxia um and then uh yeah taking that into account um you're hopefully uh able to utilize that wherever you may have this situation. Um, But uh, it's a useful tool
0: to have in the toolbox. Listen guys, that's absolutely fantastic and a really good synopsis of both what's happening at the, uh, at the body, body level or physiological level and indeed some of the management principles. Um, so I just want to thank you for your time today and indeed your input and we'll catch you soon again on the world extreme medicine podcast for another engaging episode. Many thanks. Thanks for listening to the episode please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.